take your Bibles and go with me to the book of Matthew chapter 5. Um, while you're turning there, I'll tell you the tradition among the wolf hunters of the Eskimo people has been handed down from, uh, through generations from one to the next about one of the effective ways they've found to kill wolves up in ice country. Uh, they discovered that the natural cravings of a wolf for blood sets him up for failure. And so they discovered that if they would take a knife and uh, take fresh animal blood and put it on that knife and let it freeze, uh, then after it got frozen, they could put another coat of animal blood on that and it would freeze. And then they could put another coat on that and they would repeat that process until that knife blade was caked with frozen blood. And then they would take the handle of the knife and bury it into the, into the ice so that all that was sticking up was the blade that was coated with blood, frozen. And then a wolf, over a period of time, would smell that, make their way over to the knife, and begin to lick the blood. His natural body heat, as he licked the knife blade coated with blood, would begin to melt that blood, and the taste of blood would cause him to lick it more and continue to going through the process, all the while slowly but surely melting the blood down to where the knife blade was exposed. And unknowing to the wolf, because by this time his natural cravings for blood was so intense and he was getting that filled, that he didn't realize that as he licked that down and the knife blade was exposed that he began to cut his own tongue and the blood that he was actually getting was his own. And the Eskimos figured out that they could come back a day or so later and find the dead wolf who had bled to death drinking his own blood driven by his natural cravings. That is a great reminder to us that each of us has natural cravings that definitively mark us. Now, that can be a mark for the good or for the bad. Now, we might hear that and say, wait a minute, I crave things like uh, bluebell ice cream. Amen. That's, you know, I'm not sure if they're going to have Bluebell in heaven, but I'm believing that they will. I love Bluebell ice cream. And there are times that I'm coming home from a hard day or sitting and watching something on television, and my mind says, Son, you need Bluebell. And I found when I have that, it's just better not to fight it, just to give in. And now we might hear that and say, okay, yeah, that's all fun and games. And, you know, it doesn't definitively mark me that I like Bluebell. Well, I could give you a side profile shot, and I'll tell you it does definitively mark you if you're not careful. But that's kind of a, you know, for the most part, that's not really all that serious. I can tell you, take you back to a time in my life when I had cravings for particular substances because I had a substance abuse problem and those cravings that would drive me to those particular drugs of which I was most fond in the end marked my life to the point that had it not been for the hand of God breaking into that I wouldn't even be here today. The cravings of our lives definitively mark us 
and they have direct impact on the quality of life that we have, possibly on the quantity of life that we have. And so when we come to a discussion of life in general, and we're about, as God's people, we're as a church talking about equipping people for life and helping them move forward. Let me tell you something. The basic truth is that the cravings that you have in life directly impact you and your quality of life. So let's just stop and do some straight-up, heart-level application before I go any further. If that is a true statement, and I believe it is, what is it that you crave today? As you sit here listening to this, and we're now a couple of minutes into this message, where is your mind going? Are you thinking to yourself, I can't wait for lunch. I wish this preacher would just be quiet so we can get to lunch. That's all well and good. Probably all of us are getting close to that at this point. But particularly in your life as it relates to the overall scheme of life, where's God in the cravings of your life? Our music people have done a wonderful job today helping us begin to think along these lines with the choice of songs that they've put before us today that we've all sung. I'm desperate for you. This is the air that I breathe. Hearing from heaven. How much do you crave the hand of God in your life? Matthew chapter 5 the first few verses, we're looking at the Beatitudes. And Jesus is giving us a list of character qualities, conditions in the Christian life that are such that it causes him to say, blessed are these people. In our terminology, he is actually, we might uh, interpret it as saying, congratulations to the one who has this quality in his life. And we've already looked at several. Let's go ahead and read the passage for the day. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is that entry level of life with God where we recognize that we are spiritually bankrupt. We bring nothing to the table that could cause us to please God. We need him desperately. Blessed are those people, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's the entry level for us. But the proper response when we begin to see that we are spiritually bankrupt and we continue to experience God's grace and then we fail God because we're just human, uh, he says the appropriate response when we understand that, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Last week we looked at that one and also the next one, which is blessed are the meek, those who are tamed by God. For they shall inherit the earth. And today we look at the fourth one. The turning point in the Beatitudes. Everything in verses 3 through 6 deal with our vertical relationship with God. It is internal focus. After this we're going to see an external focus. It deals with our relationships with other people. And you'll hear me say multiple times. Our relationships with others can never be right. Unless they are first right with our relationship with God. Blessed are those then, he says, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This is a final element in this vertical relationship, the internal part of our lives as followers of Christ. And it is that part that Jesus says, congratulations to you when the, the motto of your life is, I want more with God. Notice I didn't say more from God, more with God. Hunger and thirst. Let's look at the condition part of this first. Now, realistically, probably most of us don't have a real hard time with 
hunger. Well, let me, let me challenge that, really. I know that many of us are sitting here now, and I've already mentioned food once, and I'm going to mention it again here. Uh, and it, just the thought of it at 20 minutes till 12 causes us to go, I'm hungry. And some of us are sitting there thinking, where are we going to go eat lunch today? And wives are throwing elbows saying, you hear that? We're going to eat lunch today, not staying home. I think that as Americans, for the most part, I know there are exceptions to this, maybe exceptions in this room, although I doubt it, most of us don't really get hunger. Oh, we've been hungry, but not hungry. I read a book a while back about the Donner Party. Are you familiar with that? How hungry have you been, really? Have you been hungry enough to boil leather and eat it? And most of us would say that's ridiculous. I would say it's just because you haven't been hungry yet. Are you hungry enough that you might even consider the opportunity of eating human flesh? Now, if you have that tendency today, please talk to me after this service. We will get you help. But you realize that there are those incidents in history where people were so hungry that that became not just a viable option, but the option to rule the day. Most of us are not there. I hope you never get there. So I'm not sure that we get hunger. I do think we get thirst. I had this happen to me just a little over a year ago. We lived down in, in the Rio Grande Valley of Texas, and I was mowing the yard in October, and I had actually a whole lot of yard work to do. And So I spent uh, the better part of the day out there, and after I had been out there a number of hours, I started realizing that as I was mowing, it was well over 100 degrees, humidity was very high, and I'd been all these hours without water. I started noticing that things started getting black out here around me, and I was kind of getting tunnel vision while I was working in the yard. So I took that as a medical condition and I just don't work in the yard anymore well not exactly I don't work in the yard anymore unless I take plenty of water with me you realize that if you don't drink water on a consistent basis it will damage your health so most of us don't really get the hunger thing I think but there's a good chance that a lot of us do get the thirst thing because of the conditions in which we live here Jesus uses those two examples for us as the condition, a spiritual condition that he says is to be congratulated. It is that point of our lives where we have this driving need for something. What is the craving that he points us to here? Well, I want us to be careful with this. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. See, righteousness is one of those church words. And, um, well, I, I want to make sure you understand where I'm coming from here because it's also a biblical word, so I'm not downplaying the term itself. But there are church words that we use. And one of the big problems that church people have as we try to go out with the good news of Jesus Christ into the community is we take our church words that mean nothing to them, and we expect them immediately to understand what it means. You go to somebody and say, the Bible says you're lost and you need to be saved. The average person on the street is going to say, I'm not lost. I know exactly where I am. 
And in our terminology, we know what we mean, and we don't always explain it to them. The other side of that is a lot of times we use those words inside the church, and because we don't really stop to think about it, we just kind of miss the whole point of it. So let's use this word righteousness now. Let's pull it down so that we all get on the same page of what it means. Essentially, the biblical term righteousness, uh, if we kind of compact it in, means to be right. Specifically, it means to be right in God's eyes. See, we have this sliding scale of what's right. And usually the sliding scale is in our favor. So what's wrong for you is probably okay for me. God doesn't buy into that system, okay? God says, this is right. And so when it talks about righteousness in Bible, we're talking about what God says is right. And it is to be right in God's eyes. And in this particular case, it's really good for us to get into the shoes of those people on that hillside listening to Jesus. How would they have heard this term? To be congratulated are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What does that mean? They would have heard it, according to the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, in three different ways, all of which combine together for us to get the whole biblical concept of what righteousness is. First of all, there is a legal element to this. It is to be right according to the law. I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about from modern situations. When my middle son, his name is Colin, he's 23 now, he's a youth minister at the church that I came from. They called him after I left there. And um, When he was in his first six weeks as a freshman in high school, it was on a Friday and Teresa was about to begin a new job and so she and I, it was my day off and so she and I had gone to the movies and I got a phone call while we were in the movies from one of the people at the high school. I don't know how you respond when you get calls from high school principals, but it's another day in the life of the Road Trammell family. I got this phone call, so I excused myself from the uh, movie theater, and I went out, and, and actually by that time I'd missed it. I called them back, and they passed me one person to another. Finally, I got the vice principal who was the legal guy, and I, I knew that. And so immediately I'm going, oh, man, what's the deal? Here's how he said, Mr. Rotrammel, we think your son is going to be okay, but we're not sure. Just to be sure, we're going to put him in an ambulance and take him to the hospital. Well, what had happened is our son had been assaulted. A guy attacked him from behind and beat him almost to death. As a matter of fact, the emergency room physician told us that if the guy had hit him one more time, he was unconscious and the guy was just wailing on him, that it probably would have killed him. So that started this long process for us as a family that was demanding on many fronts, emotionally to be sure, financially to be sure, physically, all of that stuff, and spiritually. Because in the best ministerial, pastoral kind of thinking, my suggestion was that we, uh, well, I just won't even tell you. You can just try to figure out what you think my su- suggestion was. I had to repent later. I'll just tell you that much. The end of that process found us, my son and me. Teresa was there, but my son and I standing in front of the judge with this young man who had attacked him. 
And the judge asked me, what do you think we ought to do? (laughs) So glad you asked. See, the deal is, this other young man pled guilty. I should have told you that the school asked us what we wanted to do about that. Do you want to press charges or not? Uh, yeah. But as it turned out, it didn't matter what we said because the district attorney's office, in investigating what had happened, said whether you press charges or not, we are filing second-degree felony assault charges on this other young man. We stood in front of the judge at the end of the process, and this young man said, I plead guilty with extenuating circumstances. The guilty plea of that young man, if we take the biblical perspective, the legal, remember we're talking about the legal understanding, the Old Testament way of using the word righteousness. His guilty plea communicates as unrighteous, at odds, in other words, not right with God according to the law, but wrong with God according to the law. Now, before you get too hard on this other young man, understand that in a spiritual context, all of us are unrighteous. Not a single one of us has anything. Now we're back to the first of the Beatitudes. Not any one of us has a single thing that we can go to God and say, "Uh uh-huh, you see this? This makes me righteous. None of us have that. Scripture says there is none righteous, no, not one. That doesn't leave any room for maneuvering there. But the good news for us is that on this legal context... Jesus Christ steps into the void for us and he says, I will be your payment for unrighteousness. I will be your righteousness. And so Jesus Christ steps into this legal problem we have with God. We cannot earn favor with God. We can't be righteous on the legal sense except as we commit ourselves to Jesus Christ, accept him as our payment for our guilt. Let me just stop for a minute and say to you, if you've not ever had that moment with Christ where you recognized that you are at odds with your creator, something's missing in your life and you just can't put your finger on it and your cravings have taken you all over the map of living, I'm here to tell you, Jesus Christ is the answer for you. And it's as simple as saying, all right, I get it. I can't earn favor with God. I know God created me for relationship with himself. I'm broken from that. I can't do it. But I accept Jesus Christ as my payment for sin. If you haven't ever done that, right now is the time for you to do it. You could not do it, and you'll spend the rest of your life looking for the answer that I'm giving you right now. Jesus Christ You need to be born again and begin a life with him that has meaning and purpose and value and joy. Jesus Christ is your answer. He is the one who fixes our legal unrighteousness for us. So those people on the hillside would have heard righteousness in that legalistic term 
Jesus says, congratulations to the ones who hunger and thirst, have a craving for being right with God in relationship with him first. But they also would have heard it on a moral sense. The term righteousness in the Old Testament also points us, and in the New Testament too, to that part of us, our character and our conduct, how we conduct ourselves in living. Let me ask it to you this way. Who are you when no one's around? Teresa and I, see, we're old enough now that our kids uh, are gone from home. Praise God for that. Now, we love our children. We love them more when they're not around for some reason. No, that's not totally true either. We loved them as kids and all that stuff. Uh, Now they're gone. But what that means is, now that they're gone, we're starting to hear stuff that happened at home when we weren't around. They know that they're old enough that we can't kill them anymore. So when we got to the point where one of them was old enough to watch the other two, uh, we would go out on dates. By the way, if you don't do that as a married couple, you should, okay? Find a way to go out and maintain the relationship that you have. So we would do that, all right? Leave the kids at home. <laughs> it's a great experience. Leave the kids at home. And we went out on a date, and we left our oldest son in charge sometimes. Well, now we're figuring out what happened when we weren't around. See, when we're around, they were angels, wonderful road trammel children. But when we weren't around, they took on that characteristic of her side of the family that, <laughs> or mine, whichever it was. Hey, man, those kids were rough. They did stuff when we weren't around that they would never do when we were around. By the way, they're just like your children because they're just like you and me, right? Right? Who are you when nobody's looking? That's a character thing. With that in mind, that's part of being righteous. See, part of being right with God has nothing to do with people around you or not. It has to do with who you are in a moral context. The third part of this is they would have heard it in a sociological context context. Let me say it to you this way. If you go read some of the Old Testament minor prophets, you will find that much of the message of the Old Testament prophets was geared to the children of Israel, specifically at the point of how they treated people. You know what? We don't do a very good job in our treatment of people as church people. Let me keep it in context here. Congratulations to those who have a craving for righteousness on the legal sense, in the moral sense, and now in the sociological sense. One of the things that I've found in churches across America, or at least the ones that I've had any contact with, is excuse me, that we do a pretty good job with the trappings of Christianity, but when it comes down to some of the bottom line basic elements, we struggle. We don't do so well with some of the basic stuff. Remember, much of the Old Testament minor prophet is, or prophet's material is written at the point and delivered at the point of God's people and how they treated people. Most of the time, how they treated one another. You know what? That's a big problem in the church in America today, how we treat one another. We fall under this umbrella of love God and love people, and I see that all over the place these days. 
That's a good thing to say. I mean, Jesus said that's the great two commandments. Love God, love people. Okay, we're going to love God and abuse people. It happens in churches all the time. We just don't think about how we treat one another. But you know, part of righteousness has to do with how we treat one another. How do you treat people? Does God look at you and your dealings with people and say, good for you, that's exactly what I had in mind? I'll give you a case in point. My son, Colin, he's a youth minister now. Uh, I need to make this quick, so I'm going to kind of pull the story down a little bit. He and some friends of his um, had a real heart. Some of these guys were staff members at the time. He wasn't, but uh, they had a real heart for kids in the underground music scene. I'm not going to explain all of that. I'll just tell you, if some of them walked in here, you would be going out and checking your cars to make sure they didn't get broken into, okay? That's the kind of kids these were. And uh, these guys had a heart for those kids, so they started playing. My son plays, uh, he's a musician. And uh, so they put together a band, and they started playing concerts for that, for that scene specifically. And they would share the gospel in, the, in, the, in their concerts, and it was an incredible thing to watch. Um, and so one night after one of their concerts, and by the way, they don't do their concerts at 7 o'clock like old people do. They start like at 10 or 11 or whenever. So uh, they were always getting out, you know, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning, that kind of thing. And uh, so they would go, in this particular time, they went to Whataburger to eat. And as they pulled up to Whataburger, these guys get out. Now, they, they're rough-looking cats themselves, right? Uh, so most people would see them and kind of scatter. In this particular night, they got out and they walked in. And they noticed there was a guy, Colin said he was sitting close to the door and he was panhandling he said dad as soon as I got out of the car I could smell him and then after that I could see why I got up to him and looked like he hadn't probably bathed in weeks and um, and the guy asked him for just a little bit of change now how would you respond in a situation like that honestly most Christian people that I know would have gone to another restaurant or would have used a different entrance, or just ignored him and walked in. Now, I'm sorry if I'm being overly critical. I'm sorry. That's just what I know, what I've seen. And my son and these guys who have a, a heart for people, you could know him, you'd know what I'm talking about. The guy said, could you give me a little bit of money? And Colin said, I'll do better than that. Come on in. We'll buy your supper. And so they take this guy in. They sit down with him at Whataburger. You can imagine what everybody else in there at 2 o'clock in the morning is thinking. How do you treat people? Congratulations to those who have a craving for being right with God in all ways. Legally, that relationship, morally in our conduct, sociologically in the way we handle people. Jesus says, congratulations to you if that's you. Why? Because he says they will be satisfied. They'll be filled is another translation there. My question to you is filled with what? What are you craving today? This is the air I breathe.
let's reverse engineer this for maximum application. What are you filled with today in your life? Yesterday, yesterday morning to be exact, I woke up in a motel room down in the Rio Grande Valley. A dear friend of mine was, wanted to get married and asked me to do the ceremony. I knew that was going to happen before I ever came here, and so I told him whenever it happened, I would do it. And So I left here Thursday afternoon and drove and got there late, and uh, yesterday was his wedding, yesterday afternoon at 5.30, and, uh, which means I drove late to get home, but uh, it was worth it for him. And um, I woke up in this hotel room in the Rio Grande Valley yesterday morning. And I was processing through some things. And while I was there, somebody asked me, a friend of mine asked me, so, uh, by the way, they're interested in how things are going here. And I, they asked me, are you happy? And uh, I said, yeah, I'm happy. But it began to work on me a little bit. And so as I was waking up yesterday morning, just me and God in that hotel room, um, I got kind of reflective. You should know, by the way, that I'm not ever going to come up here and stand in front of you and act like I got it all together. Okay? I'm going to be transparent with you. I'm a fellow, fellow struggler just like you are, okay? Um, and so yesterday, as I was processing through this, I thought, okay, something's not right here with me. And as I was praying to the Lord about it, it really what it got down to was I wasn't filled in the way we're talking about it here. And that caused me to kind of reverse engineer it again. And so, okay, so if I'm not filled, it wasn't that I'm not happy, it's just that there were some things missing that I know should be there. Like, for instance, that being consumed with the awesomeness of the presence of God. I got that last night as I was driving home about an hour and a half into it. It got dark, and so I opened the moonroof on my car and uh, was just driving, and, you know, the, it was cool out, and I could see the stars. I'm looking up instead of down, and uh, which makes you glad you weren't driving with me. But, um, and, and, and I asked God, you know, bring me back to that sense of being enthralled with your presence. You know what the deal was? I've, I figured God kind of helped me see this so through the course of that whole process. I have been so busy for three months now. By the way, yesterday started our fourth month. Seems like 40 years to you, doesn't it? Uh, I've been so busy in trying to be a good pastor and trying to learn names and trying to learn people and trying to learn the dynamics of this church and trying to lead this church and trying to figure out without staff how we're going to survive in this church and try to look forward. And I've been so busy with church stuff that my cravings got wrong. Let me rephrase that for you. Sometimes in church we get so focused on blessings that we totally neglect the blesser. So what are you filled with today? Is there any room for you to do better in being totally consumed with God and his love for you? If there's room today, 
then it may be that you're craving the wrong things. Let's pray. So, Father, we come to this time, all of us needing help. It seems like as we work our way through life that we just get it wrong. We, we fall victim to our own passions. We take away you from the rightful place that you have in our lives and we put something else on the throne and we start pursuing that thinking that it's going to get us what we want and all the while we miss it. So Father, help us to be honest today. Give us that desire for you, an awareness that you are in fact the air that we breathe and without you nothing goes right in life. There are those here today who don't know you as their Savior. They've never trusted you to give them life. Help them today to have the courage to take a step forward and say, I've got to have that. Many of us have done that, Father, but we just get it wrong. We, we start going after all kinds of passions, hunting, sports, even church miss you in the process may we be people that you could say to us congratulations you got it right we pray these things in Jesus name